Every teacher at some point has struggled to find ways to motivate students. Why are so many of our students unmotivated? Today, we're going to talk with a teacher who is literally on a quest to find the answer to this question. And welcome to episode 22 of the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, We'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that Diane and I will be leading a teacher adventure to Kenya in June of 2020. We'll be visiting amazing schools, learning from some of the world's best teachers, and going on safari. To join us, visit bookbagtours.com. Chris Holmes listens to teenagers. As a teacher, scholar, and facilitator, he brings student voice to the conversation about curriculum design, instructional change, and student engagement. He is in the midst of a project he calls Backtracking Apathy. Hundreds of interviews with teenagers across the country about why they lack motivation, and what schools could do to increase it. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, good to be here. So start by telling me, why do we have such a motivation problem in schools? Wow, that's a heck of a question to start with. Um, I guess the first way I would answer that is I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. Um, I don't know that it's any different than 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. I mean, I think that we always typically lean towards technology and mass media and all the distractions. And I'm sure that's part of it, but I'm not an expert in that area. All I know is that um, in my experience, almost 20 years of teaching, um, kids are not as engaged as I'd like them to be. This last year, you've gone on a few road miles to start to investigate and gather data around this. Can you tell a little bit about the journey that you've been taking? Yeah, I'll, I'll give a little background for that. Um, I would say maybe five or six years ago, maybe a little longer, I was teaching um, in a large school, a different school that I was at with about 2,300 students. And uh, I taught there for 10 years, great relationships with the kids. I loved them. They loved me. We were rocking, doing great things. But there was something missing. There was something um, that wasn't happening after they graduated. Like, I could motivate almost anybody for a certain amount of time, but it only lasted so long. It was, it was extrinsic motivation. And even it might transition into intrinsic motivation, but even that, it, it wasn't completely, it didn't lock in. And I would stay friends with them after they graduated, and I would see that I really wasn't having the impact on their lives or any of my colleagues who were phenomenal that um, I thought we should. And I thought something has to change. And I started to go back, I went back to school and I started to study motivation and um, decided that I needed to move in that direction and away from what I was teaching was journalism. I still love journalism. Obviously, the, the journey that I'm on is journalistic, so I, I still love that. But there was something missing in education. Um, and it was, it started, I think, with giving students a voice. And that's really where the journey started is I, I started asking students, 
there was one time when I was teaching and I had an assignment and they were supposed to write stories and I went to grade them that night or put comments on them and like three of the 25 kids had done the assignment and this was not like them. Um, and at first I was frustrated, like I think most teachers would be. And, and then I thought, it's not going to do any good to get mad at them. So I'll do something different tomorrow. So I went back to class and I told them how many people turned in the stories. And even the three that turned in the stories really didn't put their best effort into it. And so rather than preach to them or get mad at them, I thought there's something going on here. So I scrapped the lesson plan. I made, turned the, the desk into a circle and I said, let's, uh, let's talk. Tell me what's going on. And they did. And they were real, real honest to the point where many were in tears talking about the struggles and the frustrations and, and the things that were getting in the way of, of learning. And the thing that struck me most is that they wanted to learn. And I think this is it's a myth that a lot of adults have, maybe not so many teachers, but a lot of adults who aren't in education think kids don't care about learning these days. They're wrong. They care more than ever about learning. They're just not as interested in the way we're teaching and what we're teaching as what else is going on in their lives. And then so I, I started asking them, what's going on in your life? Why, why are you not as engaged as, as, as you could be? Um, and they started giving me some honest feedback. And so I started collecting this. And, and it really didn't start off as a project. It was just, I was curious. And then I started asking people outside of my school, former students and, and adults, and just as many people as I could find here in St. Louis where I live. And same, same kind of stuff. And it dawned on me that it, what people were saying was aligning with what I was learning about motivation and psychology. So I decided last year that I would take it beyond St. Louis. And I, I, as you said, Diane, I went on a, I guess you call it a road trip to 17 different states and just started interviewing mostly random, um, random interviews, teenagers, and asking them, you know, when did you lose motivation? Why do you lose motivation? What could schools be doing differently um, to re-engage you? What's the most important thing to learn in high school? Things like that. And they gave me just incredible insight. And I thought, I've got to do this full scale. I want to do all the states, exception of Alaska and Hawaii. Um, I can drive to all, all these states. And so this summer, I decided that I would, I would do that. I would drive to all 48 prestigious states, and, and I would ask teenagers throughout the country these questions and collect them to try to find themes. Um, I have some ideas based on teaching for 20 years and what kids told me about, you know, what in, engages them, what doesn't engage them, but um, I needed more data. So I set out over spring break a month ago and hit five states in the Midwest. And on May 31st, I will launch uh, my journey to Iowa from St. Louis to Iowa and then through Nebraska and out to the great Northwest. So far in your travels, what have been the commonalities that you've found? Yeah, so, you know, I've been teaching quite a while, and, and I, th I think I know kids pretty well, and I do, but I learned some things by listening to kids that I, I didn't really know to the extent uh, that I know now. And then, again, I've just gone to, well, I went to several states last year, and I've gone to five this year, but there are definitely some themes that are running through the conversations with kids. Um, you know, one of them is, that when we get to autonomy, and we all know about autonomy and how important it is for kids to be able to have some control over their learning, and some control over the way they learn, the types of things that they learn. And we have, there's plenty of literature and research on that. What I didn't understand to the extent that, that I do now, that I'm starting to, is that when kids think of autonomy, when they think of control, they're telling me they want self-control of themselves, of their emotions, of their decisions. 
Um, and this goes against, I think, everything that, that most people stereotypically think of when they think about adolescence. Um, oh, they're selfish, they're egotistical, they don't think, you know, they don't think before they do things. And, and yeah, we know neurologically that their brains are still developing, but it doesn't mean they don't want to. They desperately want some control over their emotions and, and they want to regulate themselves, both in learning and just in relationships. And they're frustrated because they know there's knowledge out there. They know that there are people who know these things and they're not getting it in school. And so one of the things they're telling me is they want to be taught how to do that. They want to be explicitly taught, you know, what does science know about this? I'm desperate to find out. That was one of the things that, um, to the extent that they're telling me I was not aware, it meant so much to them. Another thing, and then this, I, I wish this weren't the case, and I don't really want to write about this, but it's what I'm hearing. And if it continues throughout the summer, obviously it will be part of the story. Um, Although students all talked about having a, a real significant teacher in their life, a mentor, uh, someone who made a difference, they also talked about many teachers that they felt did not show respect, either to them or their classmates. And this went not just in high school or middle school, but elementary school. I was in Memphis, Tennessee, interviewing four different kids, and every single one of these kids said they had heard in elementary school a teacher call a student stupid. Not what you're doing is stupid, which is bad enough, but actually you're stupid. Um, and it, uh, it was appalling. And it wasn't the only place that I've heard things like this. And it, it dawned on me that, not to make excuses for teachers, but they're human. And, and they make mistakes. We make mistakes. I've made mistakes. Not to that extent, but we make mistakes. And what kind of lack of self-regulation do we have as, as teachers? Um, and that is affecting kids as much as anything. So many stories from cafes to truck stops to um, just talking to a kid on the side of the street, said, I really wanted to do this project. I really wanted to do well. And when the teacher disrespected me, I just, I gave up, I quit. Um, and that's sad. And this is, these are people who had a really strong relationship with another teacher, but it almost seemed like it did not counterbalance. Like the negativity was stronger than the positivity. Um, so that's something that I'm being told, which is, disturbing, but it's what I'm being told. And that's why I'm doing the project to try to get student voice into this discussion. One thing that stood out to me as you were traveling around and, and sharing some of your stories were the idea that students want to have relevance to what they are learning. Can you talk to more about some of the sound bites or the thoughts that kids are having about relevant teaching? Yeah. And again, I think this is some added insight to me. Um, I always thought, okay, how do I make my classes relevant, like right now, um, 2019? How do I bring this stuff in? And really what they meant by relevance when they, when they talk to me is they want to know what's relevant to them. And I know it sounds selfish, but at this point in, in human beings' development, the idea of self, and this is another huge thing that's coming through, the concept of self, who am I, where do I belong, um, what am I supposed to be doing, do I matter, where do I fit, it is hugely important in a teenager's life. Um, you know, we think about them partying, and we think about the hormones raging, and we think about this other stuff, but in their private moments when they're thinking, this is what they're thinking. They desperately want to know who they are and where they fit. Um, so, so these are the kinds of things that we have discussions about, and it's crazy how honest these total strangers are with me. 
um, they're dying to be heard. They're dying for someone to listen. And I don't offer any advice. Um, I'm just, I've got my recorder and I'm asking questions and I'm listening. And they don't get that very often, I think. And, and they like that. So they, they tell me quite a bit. We know that right now there's a lot of students who are not well, not, not well holistically. And we see that with increasing suicide rates and uh, with mental health issues. When you're out there talking to teenagers, is that something that's coming through to you also? Yeah, I get a lot of anxiety. I get a lot of depression um, as far as the topics that come up. Um, if uh, I have a conversation with someone and we just click right away, um, a lot of times kids are free to to share instances of self-harm, um, of suicidal thoughts. Uh, it's just remarkable. Maybe it's the fact that I'm a stranger to them, that they're willing to talk about these things. I don't know. Uh, and I'm not saying that that we should bring 50 counselors into every high school. I think there's another, although we should provide more counseling available to kids, there's another way to go about this. And my ideas are starting to formulate as I'm having these interviews. But yeah, kids talk a lot about um, mental health and, and just anxiety and, um, and why school is hard. And they wish that they weren't like that. One of the books that uh, has been real popular in education circles this past year is What School Could Be by Ted Dintersmith and the focus that we're all striving to accomplish great scores on standardized tests, and it's all about getting into the right college equals success. Do students share that success for them is equal to having this four-year school experience, or I do so well on this challenge? That's really a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, the vast majority of kids, and this is funny, kids even who, maybe don't have good relationships with their parents, or maybe even kids who grow up in, in traumatic environments at home, um, want to please their parents. Almost every child, regardless of their experiences with their parents, they want to please their parents. Um, so the idea of college, if the parents value that, typically the kids will value that, typically. Um, but they're not telling me that they value it, not to the extent that their teachers value it or their parents value it. They're doing it because they think society values it. And they're told this is how you succeed. The conversation I'm having with kids when we get on the topic of success is a different definition of success. It's almost like um, a child's a childlike definition of success, not in a bad way, but in the best way, in an innocent way of happiness and joy and and giving love and comfort to other people. This is really what kids want. I know that a lot of people don't think of adolescence that way. But that's what they want. Um, and the world is not telling them that's what it should be about. The world is telling them, make as much money as you can, get a degree, buy a big house, buy a big car, have kids, buy nice clothes. This is success. And they know better. Teenagers' brains are not any inferior than adults' brains. Their experiences, but their brains aren't. They know better. And somehow what happens over the course of an adult life is the culture just keeps chipping away at this innocence until they buy into it. Um, and they don't want to buy into it. And that's one of the things that's causing them the stress and anxiety is they realize this is the path. This is what teachers have told them. This is what schools tell them. This is what their parents tell them. This is the path to success. And they're not so sure. I'd like to take a second to tell you about the sponsor that's made today's episode possible. GoToScience is a pre-K through second grade tool that allows students to learn all aspects of the curriculum through scientific inquiry. Each month, we give away a free one-year subscription to GoToScience. To win this month, tag us on Twitter. Our handle is at ed, the number four, better world, and share your favorite quote from one of our episodes. Good luck. I'd also like to remind you 
that Diane and I are available to speak at your conference or to work with your teachers. If you're interested, send us an inquiry on our website at ed4betterworld.com. Now let's get back to the show. Before we get into some bigger issues like how can we change schools to, to try and mitigate some of these things, I'm curious how you've changed your own practice based on what you've heard out there on the road. Wow, really good question. How have I changed my practice? Well, one of the ways is that I, I no longer teach journalism. Nothing against journalism. I love it. I think it's a great, great subject to have in school as an elective. I think it applies to absolutely all the disciplines. And I would do that when I taught journalism. I'd bring in math. I'd bring in science. I would include all the different disciplines in the schools as much as I could. But I don't teach journalism anymore. I still use it in my teaching. We still do a newspaper and a yearbook, and I teach some of those concepts. But really, I teach to... Um, I teach humanity. I teach the, the nature of being human. Um, and whatever I've got available to me, I pull in to do that. I teach literature now, I teach creative writing. Um, so the books that I choose really allow students to explore the human condition. There is suffering. That's, that's what's going to happen as a human being. You're going to have joy. You're going to have suffering. How do you navigate that? And kids love it because they want to know. That's really what they want to know. How do I navigate life? Can you please give me some advice? All this, this math and science and English, it's good. I know it's good. I want to do it. They want to please their teachers. They want to learn, regardless of what some people think. But they just want something else, especially in adolescence. People don't understand that adolescence is a different time in a child's heart and a child's brain, where they're truly, in, in more ways than any other time in their lives, struggling for who they are and where they belong. And if we don't address that, we're missing an opportunity, missing an opportunity to tap into that desire to engage. And when we don't, they're distracted. You know, they're thinking about other things. They can't fully appreciate the academics, which I think they would more if they had the opportunity to explore these other things. So as a parent of a student who's in his 20s and in college, or you know, several of our listeners are parents, what questions should we be asking our students to get them to tell their stories? Or the, and how can we better listen maybe is a better question. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Um, someone asked me a similar question about what do we say to kids when they, they come to this. And, and when they ask for advice, I, I give them advice. When my students want to know or my children want to know, then, then I will give it to them. But if a student were to come to me and say, Mr. Holmes, I, I really, I'm struggling with this thing. Can I talk to you? And I say, sure. And I sit down and I listen. I don't jump right in and look to give advice because most of the time they just want to be heard. They just really want someone to listen to them and acknowledge whatever struggle it is they're going through. There are times, if it's serious enough, that I will say, this is what needs to happen or I think this should happen. But for the most part, I just listen. And that is amazing how healing that can be. Um, so I think that the, the advice I would give both the parents and teachers is that we listen without judgment. We stop telling them, okay, I hear what you're saying. This is what you need to do. We don't do that as much. Um, you know, we ask for clarification. Is this what you mean? Yeah, I understand. Um, and we listen. And kids respect that. They don't want to be. Here's, here's what it was. We were in, uh, I was in a college class the other day, and we we're having a discussion. And, and someone said that a child, a, a high school student said, there's just no one here I can talk to. And this teacher said, I don't understand. There are plenty of teachers for this kid to talk to. Um, and this kid has come to me and talked to me. So why would they say there's no one to talk to? And my response, as diplomatically as I could put it, was, did you give them advice? Did you tell them what they needed to do to solve the problem? 
And I think that's what we do instinctively. Well-meaning adults, parents, teachers, we want to solve the kids' problems. We want to make it better. That's really not what they're looking for. They're looking for a way to talk it through so they can make those decisions. It's tired. Adolescence is a weird time. You feel like an adult. You know you're not. It's just this weird funk, this no man's land. And they want the opportunity to be able to make some decisions. And when people are constantly saying, oh, you need to do this. Well, all you have to do is do this. If you would just do this, they shut down. You know, I think if we gave them more opportunities to solve problems together, I'm not saying stop parenting. Uh, I'm not saying let your child do whatever they want to do, but guide them rather than tell them. It's interesting as you're, as you're telling that story, how much that parallels uh, some of the international research on American teaching, for, you know, forgetting all of the holistic discussion we're having about whether children are well and, um, and whether they're heard. If we just look at our math and reading classes and you look at uh, how we prepare for higher order thinking within our, within our lessons, and then you look at the follow-up of do we actually give children the opportunity to problem solve within those lessons when they're learning, there's a huge disconnect. And I think there was a, a Tim study that came out back in the uh, mid, you know, 2000 teens, I don't know, 2013, 2014, something like that, that said that on average, American teachers, uh, 0% of the time actually allow students to struggle enough so that they can learn higher order thinking skills in the classroom. And, and that seems to parallel exactly what you're saying. And it's not because American teachers are, uh, are trying to, you know, stick it to kids. It's because they're too helpful, right? We, we want our kids to be well. And so we want to give them all of this help and support. And when we're doing that in emotional contexts, it very much sounds like what you're saying is we're robbing children of the opportunity to solve their own problems and to develop the skills that allow them to solve problems going forward. Yeah, like I think it comes down to thinking. Um, We're we, we really good at having kids memorize facts. And education is kind of built to pour content into kids, especially at the high school level, and say, now perform on a test and show that you understand it. Um, and they're really not given the opportunity to creatively think. Um, and I want to add that word creative because it's a hugely important word as far as autonomy goes and as far as engagement goes, that we allow children to be able to think divergently, to come up with their own ways of coming at things rather than saying, oh, no, 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 you, you need to think of it this way. Um, you know, give them the opportunity to explore their, their brains and, and their creativity and come up with their own ways of, of looking at things. That kind of guidance cognitively. Um, creatively is really, really important as far as developing those higher order thinking skills. You know, if you look at, if you look at the taxonomy, um, memorization isn't too high on it. Uh, so if we did more of those things that are higher up on that, um, then kids would, I think they'd learn deeper. And that's really what we're talking about is deeper learning. And they would be more interested in learning. When you talk about deeper learning and the ability for us to be better listeners with teacher, with students, you know, this, this idea of time comes up. You, you, we often hear teachers don't have time to do these sort of things. How, what advice would you give a teacher who says, I know I need to be reaching these students and providing deeper learning. How do I adjust my time in order to do that? It's probably one of the most difficult and frustrating issues in education right now um, because we're, we're forced by the nature of, of the educational um, which is frankly very political environment where we teach to a test. And this is how we decide that we've, we can assess whether the schools are doing a good job, which I think is idiocy. Um, you know, for many reasons, which we don't have time to go into, it's, it's well-meaning but very ill-conceived. As long as teachers are forced to produce test scores, 
this is going to be a struggle. I don't begrudge any teacher for not being able to teach this way because they're forced to teach to a test. And principals are forced to teach their teachers to teach to a test. And because of states and, and federal government, um, the atmosphere politically and, and with legislators, school boards and superintendents are forced to do this too. We all just follow suit. And until this changes, until people start to realize that education is, is more than this, um, it's going to be hard. It's hard to, to hit the kids, especially a teenager, where it really, really matters when you've got a prescribed curriculum or you've got so much content that you have to shove down a kid's throat for them to regurgitate on a test. When that's the goal, and in many cases it is, then it's hard to do this. And until that changes, I don't see a, a, a radical change in the way that we need to be teaching, especially adolescents. In addition to taking away the pressures of standardized testing, what other systemic changes would you like to see that would help address some of these motivation problems that you've talked about? Let me re rephrase or, or kind of clarify my approach to standardized testing. I'm not anti-standardized testing. I'm not saying you're applying that, but I'm not anti-standardized testing. Um, I think it's good that we have a core curriculum, that we, we know what we want kids to learn and that we assess whether or not they've learned it or not. I, I think that's important. Um, and I think that in, in some instances, the push towards assessment has been very, very good for public education. I think we've taken it down. Um, we've diverged off to um, a path that's, that's not healthy. Um, but I'm not saying we should get rid of standardized testing. What I'm saying is that we should not assess the quality of our teaching, the quality of our learning, and the quality of our schools based on those standardized tests. There's much, much more to look at. Um, in regard to progress, in regard to where students starts and where they end in the educational process. Um, just the fact alone that we, we don't really, there's some poking around with this, some schools and some districts poking around with this. And I'm not saying we standardize test kindergartners, but we do have kindergarten entrance um, assessments where we can tell is a, kid, is a, a four-year-old or five-year-old ready for kindergarten. We know these things and we know what skills they need to succeed in school and what skills they don't. Until we start to use that as a baseline, then how do we know if a school or a school district is really being successful or not? They come to us already programmed to perform at a certain level. Granted, we can improve that, but if we don't base our assessments on whether we're a good school on when they come to us, then it's just smoke and mirrors. You know, we get really bright kids in who are, frankly, it comes down to opportunity, um, who have opportunities as one-year-olds, as two-year-olds, um, as preschoolers, and they thrive because they've got more opportunity and more support. And yet we use an apples-to-apples -apples comparison on school districts to say this school district is performing poorly, and it's a poor-performing school district or a struggling school, or this school has bad teachers. Um, and that's really unfortunate that it's gotten to that point because I don't think that's fair or accurate. So what, what other systemic changes would you like to see in our education system that would help children uh, and, and teachers provide the kind of education that allows students to be more motivated? You know, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and to share my ideas and, and my, my journey and my conversations with kids. But I want to make sure that this is clear. I don't know. I, I don't have the answer. Um, I think I have a, a real good start at something that might work, um, and I'll share that with you now, but um, I, I don't know. I think a lot of times educators come up with these ideas, and they're like, if we would just do this, um, and it's so much more complicated than that. Uh, but I will tell you this, that in, in my studies and in my, my experience teaching, and especially in talking to the teenagers, 
I have come up with an idea, and I'm not the only one. This is being done in other places. Um, I'm taking a little different approach based on what I'm hearing. So you have a positive psychology or positive education movement that's kind of coming out of the University of Pennsylvania, headed by Martin Seligman, the, the founder, one of the founders of um, positive psychology. And what they've done is they've, they've kind of created an offshoot, positive education, where they're training teachers in other schools throughout the world, um, one in particular here in, in the States, um, and then several others in, in Australia and, and, and China and, and other countries. And they're recreating a curriculum around the idea of positive psychology. And they're showing some results, but it, it's early. They haven't been doing this very long, so there's not really a, a longitudinal um, data to be able to say, oh, this is the way to do it, but it's encouraging. Um, there's also self-determination theory, which has been around for, for decades, and there's schools that have tried to use this and incorporate self-determination theory in regard to developing intrinsic motivation, autonomous motivation. Um, and what I've done is I've tried to, to look at ways to combine those um, in addition to study of the self, self-concept, self-esteem, self-concordance, self-actualization, just especially in, in high school, and understand that I'm not speaking about elementary because that's not my expertise, although there's definitely a place for this. And research shows that actually middle school might be the best place to start this. But I teach high school, so this is my focus. And I'm looking at a way to create um, a curriculum. And I'm not, I don't mean just like a, a one lesson every week or a morning meeting, not that there's anything wrong with those, but I believe it needs to be much more embedded than that. And I'm looking at combining all three of these, PERMA, which is basically the positive psychology definition of, of well-being, which is positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishments, with self-determination theory, which means that you've got a combination of three basic components that lead to autonomous motivation, which is autonomy, relatedness, and competence. Notice there's a comparison, there's a crossover between both of those, and the self. And when you take all three of those and mold them into a curriculum, along with human learning, the cognitive science of human learning, you know, whether it's talking about neuroplasticity or teaching kids about memory and retrieval of information, how the brain works, how it develops, how it develops well, how it develops poorly. Kids like to know this stuff. This is academic. This is hard stuff, some of it, but they want to know it. Um, so I'm, I'm developing a curriculum where I'm incorporating all of those things, and I call it human learning and well-being. Um, and it's being fed by the conversations that I'm having with these teenagers. So next year, I start a class at my school for seniors, which is called Human Learning and Well-Being. And it is based on self-determination theory, positive psychology, and, and this combination of the self, which, again, these kind of go in and out of each other. They're all related um, with human learning and cognition. So I've developed this class, or I'm developing this class, and I'll teach it next year. But it's, it's combining all of this into one senior class. What I would like to do is I would like to have a school where the kids helped me one year develop a curriculum, a 9 through 12 curriculum, a class for every grade, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, um, broken down into these different components, and then assess them academically, um, assess their mental health, assess their motivation, assess their, their happiness. We have assessments for these. Psychologists and, and, frankly, businesses have been using them for years. Sports teams use them. This is not some fly-by-night thing that, that someone just came up with. Uh, this is well-researched empirical type assessments. And, and we use these to gauge whether or not kids in these classes, in this curriculum, are achieving at various, in various areas at a higher level than kids who aren't taking them. So what I would like to do is have a longitudinal study. Uh, frankly, 
it could keep going to long after I'm dead. Uh, but where we track kids from teenagers to 25-year-olds, 35-year-olds, 45-year-olds, 55-year-olds to see, are we affecting their well-being? What is school doing for how well they've adjusted to life, how well they navigate life, which is what teenagers are telling me they want. They want to know how to navigate life. Okay, let's develop a curriculum and test it. Let's assess it. Um, and I want to do that. I want to have a school where I can implement a 9 through 12 curriculum where kids help me develop it, and then we teach them. And we have control groups, and those are also in the study for decades. And we see, are we making a difference? Now, early schools that are using positive psychology, positive education now are showing improvements in these areas after the classes have ended. But they've only been doing them for a few years, so it's, no one's really gone into adulthood. Um, I would like to continue that and find out. And maybe I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, that's not bad. That's science. Then we know something. You know, having a, a, a hypothesis that, that doesn't work out is not bad. Um, but I believe that it will make a difference. I believe that based on my experience, especially based on what kids are telling me. So, Chris, we have one last question for you, and it's a question that we ask of all of our guests. If you could change education in some way to make the world a better place, what would you do? And we're going to ask you to answer that in just two sentences. I would implement a human learning and well-being curriculum at the high school level and assess it for decades. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies. We want to thank Chris Holmes for being a guest on today's show. Credit for music on the show goes to Midair Machine. Join us next week as we talk with Cameron Patterson, editor of Flip the System Australia, a book that is driving conversations about the role of public education down under. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change. <laughs>